morning, Mars family. I was chatting away. I was a little delayed getting up here. Being home on your couch watching online does have its perks, but oh, I love being here. I've missed you all, and it's just wonderful to be together with you. This morning, the scriptures from John 19, 28 through 37. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies be taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may know and believe. These things happened so the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Troy. Uh, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Kyle Lake, and I serve as the pastor to our high school ministry anthem and as our family life director. And I'm really excited to be with you all this morning. And as Delwyn mentioned, uh, today is... Uh, a day that the church celebrates uh, as the beginning of Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday. And our typical sort of teaching text for today would be Jesus entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, but here in John's Gospel, uh, it actually happens way back in chapter 12. And I think it was August when we were in chapter 12, which one highlights how long we have been in this uh, series, the Messiah series on the book of John. But two, it also highlights uh, how much John is drawing out these final days of Jesus' life. How much all of his writing, the entire gospel, is headed toward this final week. And this culminating moment. And for uh, the early church and Jesus' disciples, this story that we encounter here, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, was a very disorienting experience. When have you found yourself in a place of disorientation? 
It was a, a handful of years ago at the beginning of sort of the, the early days of Art Prize. And uh, I was down on Division, and there were some local artists that were putting on uh, some exhibits to show off their art while this sort of big thing was happening in the city. And a, a friend of mine, we, we went into this particular building that was showing some of these local artists and uh, some of their work, and it was packed full of people. And we're like, this must be some really great local art happening here. Uh, and so we're wandering around for a few minutes, looking at some of the art. And then uh, this person gets one of those, those megaphones and sort of calls people over to attention. We're like, oh, maybe they're going to talk about the art. Maybe there's something exciting happening here. And this person with the, the excitement and the abandonment of a March Madness fan, uh, yells into this thing, are you ready for the vegan chili cook-off? And in that moment, I'm like running out the door. Get me out of I was like, how did I get into uh, this place? I thought I was going to be seeing some local art, and now I'm in here uh, with this cook-off that has no meat. Uh, and now I would be like, my friends, we're together. But in that moment, I was like, get me out of here. A moment of complete disorientation. And for the early Christians, this moment here, this story was extremely disorienting. Their teacher, uh, their dear friend, uh, their rabbi, their leader, was handed over to uh, the religious officials, was handed over to the Romans, and faced uh, a death that was reserved for sort of the bottom of the barrel. And so it was incredibly confusing as to what happened. And the early church tried to, to figure out, how do we make sense of this death? How do we make sense of what just happened here? How do we comprehend and understand uh, the crucifixion of Jesus? And throughout the history of the church, uh, this has been a question she's wrestled with. And there's a, a variety of images of uh, sort of scriptural motifs that the church uses to, to try to name uh, and say, well, it's kind of like this. It's sort of like that. Uh, and those, those things are called theories of atonement, which is just a way of saying how we are made one with God. And Leanne Van Dyke, who uh, was the dean at Western Theological Seminary for many years and now is president down at Columbia Seminary in Atlanta, she, she writes this. She says, atonement theories do not claim to define or explicate the inner mechanics of salvation. They seek to express in limited analogical language the reality of God's decisive act on behalf of a broken world. There was some kind of victory that took place, some kind of power shift in the universe, some kind of ransom paid, some kind of healing initiated, some ultimate kind of love displayed, some kind of dramatic rescue affected. Of course, the, the terrible paradox 
of the Christian faith is that this rescue, this victory, this healing happened because of a death, a notorious public execution. This is the dark mystery of the atonement. No theory of the atonement can effectively account for that central paradox. Rather, the range of atonement theories attempt to focus our attention, illuminate the truth, and point beyond themselves to God. It's maybe one way of, of thinking about uh, how uh, the, the Bible and the early church uh, and the church throughout history has tried to make sense of this is through the, the child's toy nesting dolls. Uh, we had a set of these nesting dolls growing up uh, that were, uh, had the nutcracker on them. So I'd see them at Christmas all the time. But if you've ever seen a set of nesting dolls, uh, it of course has this one larger doll on the outside. And then uh, it's split in the middle so you can open it up and then there's another one inside. And then usually there's a handful more of these nesting dolls. And that's maybe a helpful way to think about the way of talking about what the death of Jesus means. Is that it's kind of like this, but then you open it up and you're like, oh, it's, it's also about this, and it's about this, and it's about this. And I think that's what Leanne Van Dyke here is trying to point us to, is that there's some sort of victory that took place. Some kind of power shift, some kind of ransom, some kind of healing. It's all these different things. And here in John's gospel, uh, throughout the gospel and coming to this place of Jesus' crucifixion, we see that John is drawing us to this idea, this image, this picture of Jesus as the Passover lamb. That somehow in Jesus' death, in his crucifixion, it's like the Passover. And so in the story of the Passover, if you remember back in the book of Exodus, it begins with the people of Israel coming down into Egypt and growing in such large numbers that uh, the leaders of Egypt begin to worry that they are going to overthrow and take power. And so they enslave the Israelites. And they force the Israelites to labor for them day after day. And the people cry out. And God hears their cry. Here's what the book of Exodus says in chapter 3. It says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the Passover begins with God hearing the cries of God's people. God seeing the people in misery and suffering and being concerned about them. That God is concerned. God has compassion and love for those who are suffering. And I imagine that that little bit of good news 
that God is concerned with suffering might be good news to some of us this morning. That for some of us entering into this space or logging on to this, uh, this service online may be in a place of deep suffering. And so for those of you who are suffering with the gray tones of mental health, mental struggle, mental illness, God is concerned about your suffering. For those of you suffering in lonely isolation or disconnection, God is concerned about your suffering. For those of you who are, who are suffering with medical uncertainty or fiscal, fiscal challenge or the, the painful sting of betrayal or abuse, God is concerned with your suffering. For those of you suffering with the fallout of a relationship or a job or a career, God is concerned with your suffering. And for those of you who have faced the tired agony of a deceased loved one, God is concerned with your suffering. For those of you who find yourself in a place of suffering this morning, God is concerned. And not only is God concerned, not only does God take notice, but in compassion and love, God takes decisive action to move on your behalf, to move on the behalf of the Israelites here in the story of the Exodus. In the magnitude of God's dramatic rescue invites them to begin seeing their world and their time and their life in a whole new way. Uh, here, as we move into Exodus chapter 12, where uh, there are some instructions about this particular Passover feast, notice how it begins in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. That all of time, from that point on, is to be completely reoriented, recentered around this particular decisive and definitive act of God to rescue the people. And isn't it interesting that thousands of years later, time would once again be reoriented around another definitive and decisive rescue act by God? in the person of Jesus. And these Passover instructions go on to say a few things that John is going to draw into his gospel as he talks about Jesus as this Passover lamb. Uh, here in chapter 12, we see that uh, the people of Israel are supposed to select from their flocks a lamb or a goat without defect. 
that uh, this Passover is going to be a time of judgment on all the gods of Egypt because of who God is. That the people are to take this, this sort of leafy and uh, frail plant, hyssop, and to use it to put uh, the blood of the lamb or the goat on their doors. And that they're not to break any of the bones of the lamb. All of these things we're going to come to see are drawn into John's gospel as he tries to say, Jesus' death is sort of like this. It looks a little bit like this. It's kind of like that. And so just as God draws near out of compassion and love to the Israelites, just as God moves from word into fire in the story of the Exodus, here in John's gospel, we see God moving once again from word to flesh. That God moves from word to fire and word to flesh because God is concerned about the suffering of the world. And so notice how here in John's gospel, this imagery this picture of God's liberating act in the Old Testament is, is portrayed and brought into the life and the person of Jesus. So beginning in chapter 11, way back, uh, it says the religious leaders wonder if Jesus is going to come to the Passover festival. They're looking for a reason to arrest and to uh, hand Jesus over. This is right after the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It feels like forever ago that we encountered this story. Uh, but John is beginning, even at that point, to point towards this decisive moment here in his gospel and say, this is coming. It's going to be like that. Keep your eyes and your ears tuned to what is about to happen. And then things begin to unfold pretty quickly uh, in sort of a Passover image when Jesus is arrested here. Again, this is sort of the echo that we hear in John's gospel. That the religious leaders did not enter Pilate's palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. That they wanted to remain religious, uh, religiously clean and pure in order to be able to celebrate uh, this feast with their families. That Pilate mentions the Jewish custom to release one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Oh, that it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. And as Troy highlighted briefly for us last week, this, uh, this time is not just like a throwaway comment. But this is the time of the day when they would begin uh, slaughtering the lambs for the feast that night. And here... A judgment is pronounced on the Lamb of God. That a hyssop plant is used to lift the sponge to Jesus to drink. Again, drawing this image out of things that are happening in the Passover. That it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. That they didn't break his legs. And that these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And so all of this, all of this imagery that John is drawing out in his gospel, 
is trying to highlight how in this particular moment, this culminating story, this uh, un, sort of this surprising death, that something mysterious is happening. That it's sort of like this story of old. And we see in the beginning of John's gospel, he's already setting us up for this. As on the words of John the Baptist, it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so from chapter one on, it's leading us towards this particular story. That in this moment, the Lamb of God who is God himself comes to take away the sin of the world. But not only that, will be for the world the, the final Passover lamb through whom judgment and victory will be pronounced over the powers of sin and death and evil in the world. And this is how John tries to make sense of this world changing, of this magnificent death and to discover a, a new way of engaging with the world and life. And so while Jesus' death and glorious resurrection means many things, uh, perhaps here in jo John's gospel, the best way that we can sum it up is in those words of John chapter three. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that he became the Passover lamb, that he was moved by compassion, by love, because of the suffering of the world. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, to liberate it, to free it from the bondage and enslavement to the cosmic principalities and powers of sin and death. And all of that is coming in this particular story, way of John trying to say it's sort of like this, that instead of condemnation, there's liberation. That instead of death, there is life. That instead of brokenness, there is healing. That instead of shame, there is honor. And that this is the promise that has been sealed for all time, in all people, and in all places, that God is concerned about the suffering of the world. That God is concerned about your suffering. Concerned to the point that God was willing to enter into the world to be the Passover lamb. To pronounce victory over all that would keep us from being one with God. 
And so now that God has come down and acted on our behalf, has entered into the world, freeing us from all sin, freeing us from all principalities, freeing us from the enslavement of all power, we are invited to participate, much like the Israelites, in a new exodus. To leave Egypt and to follow God into a new and wonderful promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land uh, that, that is oriented by blood and water of the crucified Messiah. It's a promised land where the Passover lamb himself is the one that pronounces that victory has been won. That death itself has begun to work backward. That there will be a day with no more crying. No more mourning, no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. But behold, I am making all things new. And in that promised land, there is a great feast. There is a tremendous feast. One in which the Passover lamb himself is the host. One in which he says to all who are suffering, come. To all who are weary, come. To all who are hungry and thirsty, come. For while the journey of this life has its trials, for while the journey of this life towards the promised land is long and arduous, I will provide food for your journey. And just as uh, the Passover lamb not only freed the people from the power of Pharaoh, and our Passover lamb frees us from the power of sin and death, the Passover lamb also fed the people. And here at this table, Jesus feeds us as well. And he feeds us with his very self. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they had feasted, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we come to this table and we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the mystery of Jesus' death and resurrection. We proclaim the mystery of Jesus, the Son of God, being the Passover lamb. And we do so until he comes again. And so Mars Hill family, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. 
let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so now we come to this table and we invite God's ongoing presence to come. We invite Jesus to come and to prepare and to meet us here. And we invite the Holy Spirit to animate our hearts and our lives that we would participate in the very life of God. And so send your Holy Spirit, we pray, that the bread that we eat in the cup that we bless would be to us our Passover lamb, would be to us the body and blood of Jesus. And that in receiving these gifts, we would be joined to him and we would be his people. That we would participate in his life and his death and his resurrection. And that we as a church would be one as you are one, God. And so come among us. Stir up your resurrection power in us again, O oh God. That we may be sustained for the journey ahead as we march towards that new promised land. And so together, as we come to this table, we proclaim the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. And so, Marcel family, I come to the table. Come, you who are heavy burdened, and come and taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs>